HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greenhorns, this is Severn, and this is Greenhorns Radio, Radio for Young Farmers by Young Farmers, coming to you today from New Mexico, where we're preparing for a symposium of agrarian trust, talking about land commons in history and across cultures. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Power, Power or Powers, I forgot, who's in just north of San Francisco in Sonoma County. Hi, Ryan. Hey. Welcome to the show. How are you doing Thank today? You. Well, it's good to be here. I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm doing, uh, yeah, I'm verging in on fine. When <laughs> I met you, Ryan, you were on an island uh, near Chattanooga, Tennessee. Do you want to That's talk right. a little bit about that farm, your, your first farm, and then tell us about the farm you're on now? Sure. Yeah, so that that was more, I consider that more of a wild adventure um, than a farm. <laughs> but um, we, we, met, we grew food and raised animals, and uh, some friends and I had just completed the apprenticeship um, at the UCSC farm in Santa Cruz, California, and decided to go out there. We received an invitation to start something on that island and went out there to Williams Island uh, and started about a 20-acre mixed operation. And it just uh, fizzled after a few years, and everybody kind of went their separate ways. I moved back west, where I'm from, and in 2010 started this farm, new family farm, in Sebastopol with um, my best friend, Adam Davidoff, and we're still going. We're in our, I guess, this will be the seventh season coming up. And uh, it's less of a wild adventure and more of a real running farm. <laughs> well, the wild adventure part, uh, 
the wild adventure uh, seems like it's a part. It's a part of the the portal that brings a lot of people into agriculture. And seems like it's part of the training process for contending with the logistics of every day. Is exposing oneself to the patterns of chaos. But yeah, uh, I agree. There were a lot of interesting issues on that island that you were contending with. And I feel like those issues, you had the beautiful wild osprey and you had the manure, human, human septic waste yeah. being spread on fields. You had the GMO <sighs> corn farmers. You had dead baby calves. You had, you had uh, mining, strip mining yeah. on the river. You had private prep school things. Uh, maybe is there anything you could say that's succinct that links what you learned there in that wild adventure part to what you're what the what are the similar factors there to what you're experiencing in kind of suburban suburban bay area uh, well it's the way the way people live here and there is very similar and also pretty different i i think that here, the only kind of agriculture that you're exposed to are the old apple orchards and wine grapes. Um, whereas there, there's tons of animals and, yeah, that human manure, which actually the ranchers were paid by the waste treatment plant to use because they just have to get rid of it, uh, was being grown are being used right there next to our farm. Smelled terrible. Now they use it out here too. It's just on hay fields. A lot of things are similar actually. Um, we've got GMO corn being grown here. We've got GMO corn being grown there. Uh, it's ubiquitous as you know. Most of the corn grown here in the United States is GMO. Um, I'm not really sure if there's that much of a difference or an attitude difference for food production there than there is here, the, the vineyards are sucking up the groundwater uh, to produce something that you might think of as frivolous, alcohol. And so I think the industrial agricultural mindset is entrenched almost anywhere you go. So what do you mean when you say new family farm? What is what are the values that are inferred um, in your initiative, in your mission that you're setting for yourself yeah. as a farm? Well, we we started the farm with a intention to cultivate food, but also community and family and, and neighborliness, uh, and we. We were also committed to using draft horses instead of tractors, and we had a, a few years there just only using draft horses. And I, I remember actually seeing you at the draft horse workshop in Mendocino, um, at Doc Hamill's workshop. And then from there, we just kind of took off with it. That was that was that was 2011, I think, and it worked, but. We've switched to tractors now, and that's a different story. But we we want to grow food that's clean uh, and healthy and full of 
micronutrients and um, we want to do it in a way that's fun and enjoyable and beautiful I think more importantly than anything is that it is that it is appealing to the senses uh, as natural beings things that we perceive as as beautiful I think are also healthy and, and beneficial and also we want to have community, and we do have community that naturally forms around small, intentional farms somehow. And we want to also, besides growing food and besides having good people around, we want, we want to continue to learn and be students of the natural world, immersed in the natural world, and uh, fulfilled, fulfilled there. And what does it take to do that? I feel like there's a little story. There's a story kernel there in your, in your switch from the horses to the tractors, and it feels like maybe something that you're working out is how to make feasible those goals. Yeah. What were the factors... Um, what were the factors that were informing your decision as you made an inflection between those different types of traction? Uh, well, I mean, fundamentally, it just wasn't work. It wasn't working. Um, our soil is where we learned to use the draft horses was in the mountains, where it's just covered in snow all winter. Spring comes around, and really, as soon as it's dry enough, you might have a little bit of grass or something, but. You could just get in there. It's really sandy soil. You could use the plow or the disc, and it would work. Here we had seven-foot-tall cover crop just full of grass and legumes and without a mower. And even if you want to use one of those deck mowers, it just kind of knocks it down when it's that big anyways. And then you go out there with a little tiny horse disc and it just rolls over everything. And so we ended up hiring a tractor, custom tractor work, a few times anyways because it just didn't work. Um, and I think that it could have worked. It could work. Obviously, people farmed around here before tractors. And I think that you need a community of people working horses because we couldn't have the amount of horses that were needed for spring field work then they were they wouldn't be necessary throughout the whole rest of the season. You only needed two, whereas in the spring you maybe needed five or six. I mean, the soil dries down and then it's too dry to work, uh, and the pace of field work is much slower with the draft horses, which is something I preferred and prefer. However, when the soil when you've spent a week opening one field and then your other field is too dry to get into, you're kind of in a pickle. If you're trying to grow all these crops and, and make a living and, and have that financial sustainability part. So it just didn't work, reason one. Reason two was energetically um, the extra time needed to be a horseman, to be a horse person, to train and to love those horses and use them um, as often as we could. We're kind of stuck between highways and roads with lots of cars and the horses didn't like how short our fields were and had to turn around more often than they would have liked, and they balked at the work because of that. And 
we were so exhausted from growing vegetables and trying to make a living um, and learn how to, you know, and learning how to grow vegetables too. I mean, you start your farm, you're not an expert right away. So we were both beginning farmers and beginning horse workers, and so we just didn't have the energy to to do both of those things. So in, it was a tough decision, and they were definitely some of the best friends I've ever had. Uh, and I think that they taught us more than people have taught us, and I was sad to see them go. However, I, I'm excited about the potential that we have with the tractors, um, the potential for more precise management, uh, better use of cover crops. I, I think there's a lot of potential that we weren't able to tap into that we can now that really excites me. So moving forward, I'm stoked. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting there's a lot of interesting potential that I've been talking to upper Midwest precision, you know, regenerative ag, uh restoration ag, you know, precision permaculture peeps up yeah. in Wisconsin and Iowa and stuff, and, like, these guys are so, you know, this is, like, Farm Hack Boys' total, total focus is how can we do, you know, enlightenment theory, open-source agriculture, and monitor our, our mag- magnificent impacts as we concoct these super-localized cover crop and crop sequences and do no-till and just, you know use the magic of technology for good. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it's easy one to... One of the themes that's... Oh, wait, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that um, learning, do it, studying environmental studies and learning about the way we, uh, as, we as people have, have treated the earth and how quickly we can destroy, cut down entire forests or blow off the top of mountains or deplete topsoil so quickly. It, it's it's uh, scary how quickly and easily we can destroy. And I, it's only been recently that I've realized that it's just as easy to create and to be regenerative as it is to destroy. And it only figures we can use this stuff for good, like you're saying. Well, I don't know that it's just as easy, but I'm not going to get in an argument with you about it. What? One of the themes that's been coming up a lot lately in our young agrarian movement and new economy movement and in the co-op movement and just kind of overall in the economy uh, that is intentional and values-based that's trying to be building itself into strength, into capacity to be an a real alternative for a significant portion of the food and nutrition and services uh, that than the corporate and the Walmart economy is that this kind of understory economy or emergent economy or new economy is really um, really struggles to contend with the distorted values of the mega economy or the overstory economy and that those values are clashing in a lot of different ways and that the clash is being felt by our 
protagonists and the young farmers, and that young farmers are having a hard time, and the hard time is, you know, can be characterized uh, in a couple different ways, and a lot of those stressors are to do with the way value is assigned. And so, uh, for instance, in that Walmart economy, wages are low. In the general ag economy, uh, about 70% of the workforce has no citizenship, and so the wages are low. In that generalized ag economy, land values are not justifying the agricultural value of the crops because of a distorted subsidy system that wants to create as a as a federal policy keep food. And so these distortions in the mega economy and these you know the way that the mega economy is structured to exploit people and places, you know, has a structure a negative structural impact on what we're kind of all going with our jelly red cheeks trying to build. And a lot of young businesses and new businesses have been experiencing kind of the raw burn of rubbing up against that overstory economy. This isn't necessarily a question that, you know, you have to answer, you know, to expose any weaknesses of your own, but maybe just a little bit of reflection about from a North Bay perspective in the kind of like watershed of tech and in a place that's having a lot of gentrification of the countryside, how do you make sense of this yourself and what are the conversations that are happening in Sonoma about how to how to hold our economy together and interact with the mega economy. Hmm. Do you mean myself, like, how am I making it? Well, you can answer it if you want, but you could also just be philosophical. Uh, I know that you I have mean, the honestly, to be very philosophical. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I would be making it up here if it weren't for uh, my family being here and for white privilege, um, I, w- I wouldn't be here uh, to answer that personally. And then s- philosophically, something that's really, not philosophically, practically speaking, something that's really exciting that, that's happening right now in the Bay Area, where the tech is, as you mentioned, is they're now expressing a desire to source their food. And, you know, these campuses where... The tech companies are situated, are, are huge, and they're serving something like 40,000 meals a day. They've got restaurants inside their campuses. Uh, we, we're seeing a shift in, in the way that those institutions want to purchase. And as you know, when big institutions shift their purchasing habits, there's a lot of power in that, and that's a way to institutionalize what we're doing, um, sort of a safety net or a foundation, uh, another way to sell it. I think people start these organizations up here 
Farmers Guild, for example, which is an amazing organization. Uh, the Grange coming back around. Uh, there's there's other ones. You know, how can we be? How can we help? How can we serve what you guys are doing? And um, my answer then, and I guess still kind of now, it's just help me sell more of my food easier for for more money. <laughs> um, because help help educate the consumers who are being trained by that. What did you call it? Just big economy. Uh, they're being mega trained. Economy. The mega, it's it's mega, and it's uh, it's training them how to see food, uh, how to how to eat. I mean, Wendell Berry. I just read this Wendell Berry thing last night. Where he's like, if they could find a way to just put it in your mouth, pre-chewed, they would. <laughs> you know, and educating the people that real food is better and that it's worth a little bit more money. That's a lot of work, but that's really important. It's happening. These organizations are putting it together. I mean, even the school systems around here are saying, look, we want to buy from you. We can, we can pay this much on, on, you know, per box uh, of various crops. So there's a lot of support, and it's easy. And we sell 99% of what we grow, um, not counting the stuff that's cold out. You know, there's very little waste in our operation. Um, so it's, it's easy to sell. So I, I think uh, um, the challenge that we had in Tennessee on that island was that it wasn't easy to sell. And if and what we have as a product is a piece of food, you know, and then you could go to the store and also get a piece of food. You could go to Walmart and get that same piece of food for less. And what's different? I've got this beet right here. Is it better than the beet at Walmart? I don't know. I, how do you differentiate between that? How do you tell the story of that beat? Um, wine does it. You can have wine that's $10 or $2, and you can have wine that's $9,000 for a bottle. Um, certain agricultural products somehow can, can do that. But um, So that's where we're at right now, you know, up here, is just continuing that education, creating more markets, uh, and once the markets are there, then learning how to grow food better, more efficiently, uh, to fill them. I just was out in um, Thermal, California, at the research station, uh, University of California, Riverside Extension research station where they have a date experiment station and a citrus experiment station. And according to the land manager there, who's just wonderful, uh, I was going there talking about, you know, drought crops of the future and, you know, looking at all this drought situation in the West and thinking that in an agricultural system that's dominated by well, in terms of decision-making, is dominated by white men in their 60s. The mentality of white men in their 60s doesn't necessarily include uh, foresight of the next 60 to 100 years in terms of, you know, perennial tree crops and beyond citrus and these high irrigation crops. So anyway, I was out there having this conversation with yet another white man in his 60s, and, and he's just a sweetheart. I, you know, it was a really wonderful conversation. 
And he said to me that the date, you know, the date industry is the most kind of schismed, mosaic, disorganized uh, crop group there is. And the only reason that the date research station is still going is that it's kind of hitched to the citrus, citrus being one of the most coordinated uh, crop groups. And um, so it really struck me uh, watching the stagnation of the citrus industry and watching um, the stagnation of so many crop groups and the stability that that stagnation has as a result of a lot of foresight and coordination, um, you know, during the prime days of that industry. And so in the case of citrus, you know, the same thing could be said for Texas cotton, uh, you know, which makes a lot of, lot of sense, not, not a lot of sense in terms of how little water there is out there, but the fact that it can persist has a lot to do with the coordination and intense organization that went on earlier uh, in history. And I'm talking about cooperative gins, cooperative electricity, uh, uh, you know, obviously the activities of marketing as a group, uh, adding value by owning their own mills as a group, owning their own cut-and-sew factories down in Latin America as a group in the citrus industry, owning their own packing houses, their own marketing board, their own train cars, their own insect pest, in, uh, you know, beneficial insect farms and, you know, paying membership into those farms. So these coordination efforts uh, of these crop groups that, you know, basically formed around the spouts of the big water dams of the New Deal era, in the case of California, these coordinated groups are what hold these farmers together. And the question I'm having, you know, in terms of how do we act as young farmers in our own economies and supporting what you're asking for, which is how do I sell my food better for more and keep the story together, is what what are the ways that we can formalize that path to market? And, you know, technology in California is kind of like the, the end spout of a big dam. I mean... It's another. It's another little boom town. It's another little uh, vein of ore uh, in our economy. And it seems like getting it right as we interact as agrarians with the tech community is pretty crucial because otherwise the tech community will apply some of the logic that they learned on their screens out onto the landscape. So we better figure out how to communicate effectively to them. And you know, train them into a truth with us. Yeah. Anyway, your thoughts. You can you could react to that, or you could ignore it completely and say what you want to say. <laughs> well, if the question was how how to do that, I, I can tell you that um, there's a really awesome food hub called Feed Sonoma um, that is managed mostly by my friend Tim Page. Uh, and he's putting this 
stuff together. I mean, he's doing that advocacy and putting these pieces together. Uh, we, he, he got us down into the very first Google farmer's market <laughs> that happened inside their building on the sixth story in San Francisco. And... Uh, and they got to come in and just take whatever food they wanted for all the employees. They call them Googlers. Got to just come in and just take whatever they wanted uh, from the table. They had pre-bought everything. But anyways, it was a cool perk for the employees there. And so that was their idea. They, they've got a person who, I, I don't remember her name, but her job is to create a connection between Google and food, <laughs> and they're paying her to do it. Um, the uh, One of the perks of expendable income, I guess. Uh, but creating but that relationship now is crucial. that's, of course, the like, iconic experience of the Essex farm is all-you-can-eat kind of decommodified food. Like you just take what you want. Right, right. And I, I think that... Those companies are all offering their employees lots of perks. You can work out here. You can take a nap in our nap room. I mean, seriously. You can. There's a restaurant on the roof that specializes in cheese. I'm not making this up. <laughs> My friend works at Facebook. He told me all this stuff that perks that sound great. Um, and this is just another perk. Like you can have free organic food from local farms. It's the best food you can get, and they're just offering it. And so doing that education and the way that then it filters through the programs and iPhones and uh, apps of that world, I don't know how that's going to pan out. But but I think that... Wait, I like what you're just saying. You're saying the opposite of what I was saying. Because I was saying, how are these... Minds that are acculturated by the iPhone screen and by what's possible to synchronize and synaptically link. How does that translate out into landscape? You're saying, how does the landscape of abundance, which is the kind of like free form peasant life, essentially translated through utopian campus experience, going to translate back into tech? Ooh, I like the reciprocity thinking. Yeah, okay, and, the, and, it, and it is. They've made, like, a couple apps that I think one's called Good Eggs or something, and you can just go on your phone and just, like, find the best bunch of beets in the North Bay, you know. They're they're making it easy to um, to access what we're doing. And how to prove the worth of what we're doing. It's funny because there's this whole world of, I think, educated people who understand why they've read Michael Pollan, they're familiar with what the greenhorns are, you know, and they're like, yeah, I want to buy this. I'm going to buy it. Um, Sure, how do I get it? And then there's the people that are actually buying my food, mostly, which are buyers at grocery stores, produce buyers at grocery stores. And, I mean, more than one of them will tell you, I've been working in grocery stores since I was 15 or 12 or and I love it, um, and it, it's different. And having to sort of convince them, the middlemen um, and women, uh, to buy what I have and to pay a little bit more for it on the by case, 
or sometimes I match those prices. Uh, and they're coming around, and really it, it goes both ways because the consumers are getting all this information, why should we do this, and then bringing it to the stores, this is what we want. And then the stores are saying, this is what we have, how can I get this? And we're, we're connecting the dots. They're, they're connecting, I, I can tell you. I mean, we picked a whole chain of stores, just made this whole flip to saying, all right, we're now, now we want to buy as much as we can from you. That, that's their stated goal, you know. Um, so something's clicking. Click, click, said the mouse, and then he got eaten by a barn cat. Um, okay. I like where this is going. I'd like to take it offline with you sometime over a beer. There's going to okay. be um, a bunch of interesting stuff happening at Eco Farm next weekend. I'm going to be there hustling Greenhorn's Almanacs at the Rincon Vitoba table. They're hustling predatory insects. And... Um, we ran out of time, which is normal. You got anything okay. you want to announce that's coming coming up, or any jobs you have offered, or final hurrah? Uh, well, we are hiring for this coming season, and just a hurrah out there for the people who are living on land, farming and loving it and seeing the beauty of it um, and holding holding that close in their hearts and knowing that it's worth it's worth so much you know just a shout out to all my brothers and sisters who know what I'm talking about loving loving the life thank you big love to you Ryan and big love to all of you out there everyone's getting their sea orders <laughs> um, yep. As you're thinking about your winter time and allocating the longer dark periods of life, indoor periods of life, consider writing an essay for the next New Farmer's Almanac. It doesn't have to be five pages. It could only be one page. It could be half a page. It could be two pages. Our theme is the commons, the commons of the atmosphere, of the soil, uh, the ocean, the Internet, how the ways that we engage with and the governance practices that we as stakeholders involve ourselves with, it's a pretty broad theme. You can pretty much write about whatever you're thinking about. All and right. if you email almanac at net, then you'll be on the listserv to get the prompt and a lot of sub-theme thoughts. Um, and if you get us your thinking early enough, then we can commission the illustrations that go along with your essay. But all of it's due in February and really starts tinkling into March. But now is the time to put pen to paper or clickety-clack. Greenhorn's New Farmer's Almanac. Still available, but we do it every other year now because we just can't pull it off every year. So, thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.